chapter 4 again. And we left off around the middle of verse 7 last time. And so that's where we'll pick up if you'd like to turn there. God had made a statement to Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And now he says, but if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. And so here is the image of sin as if it is a ravenous, predatory animal. Sin is crouching at the door. What does it want to do? Its desire is for you, namely to master you or devour you. But as an alternative, here's the exhortation, you must master it. Now, that's pretty ominous. Uh, On the other hand, it's quite hopeful. Because if God says to Cain and all of us who are listening, sin is nearby, it, it can get hold of you, it can master you, but you must master it, that implies we can. So this idea of us having to simply surrender raise the white flag, and give in is not true. With God's help, particularly for Christians, with God in us, we could gain mastery over sin. Does that mean be free of sinful inclinations? Not yet. One day. It just means to be free from the stronghold of specific sin areas in our life. So sin is quite an interesting thing starts off in a uh, somewhat non-threatening way. And as you follow its appeal, uh, sometimes you can get all the way down here where it really has its hold on you. Sometimes we call that a strong hold. And it's really, really tough at that point to rid oneself of its hold. So God in his uh, strategic questions put to Cain was trying to give an opportunity to put in check the direction that he was going in. You know, for us in a practical way, I've shared this kind of thing before, um, the healthiest thing for you to do is to not trust yourself. Uh, See, the Bible says the spirit is willing, God's spirit in us for sure, but the flesh, our flesh is weak. And therefore, it being weak, we ought not trust in our willpower in and of itself uh, to resist sin. Therefore, there are certain practical things that, that we could do. I've shared with you over time some of the, perhaps to some of you may sound extreme things. Um, I don't ride in a car with uh, a woman other than my wife alone. That's a little perhaps weird, but I don't do it. I don't counsel with a woman behind closed doors, the door being closed. I don't do it. Um, even here, the door is open enough uh, so that there's enough privacy. But in fact, lately I meet with people right here in the lobby. Isn't it beautiful? It's like the best living room in the world. And it's kind of a good place, keeps everyone in the right frame of mind because there are people nearby and yet it's private enough. I'm careful about touch. Touch is quite important. I love our pastor's exhortation to give everyone a word, a look, and a touch. But just be careful of the nature of the of the touching. Um, it, it may mean something to you that's different than the person you're touching. So you don't want to conjure up desires that cannot be righteously satisfied. I'm careful about what I watch. 
Again, this is not because I'm strong spiritually. I'm weak. So I'm careful about what I watch. My computer is in full view of anyone in my house. I don't have it in the deep inner recesses of my off-limits, darkened office in the attic. I don't trust myself. So therefore, my wife and I use the same computer. When my kids come over, they use it. And by the way, they always do something to it that I can never... <laughs> uh, that's a story for another, another day. But anyway... Um, so I try to do those things because someone offered to me a formula or, uh, years ago that I, has been helpful to me. He said, um, desire plus opportunity equals disaster. So we have, since Adam and Eve, we have sinful desires. That's just the way it is. Uh, and then if there's an opportunity given to um, give in to those desires, well, that leads to disaster. So you want to deal with things both on the desire level, and that is feed what God's spirit in you is interested in rather than the flesh. God's spirit in us is interested in us spending time in his word, us praying to him, us being with other Christians who hold us accountable. These things really unquench the spirit. And then opportunity. I do the things I just told you because I don't want to provide an opportunity for the flesh, particularly if it's in a weakened state. Now, those of you here who have struggled with, say, drugs or alcohol or something and have gotten some help for it, you might be familiar with the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, and each letter stands for something that increases the susceptibility we have to use. So the H uh, uh, stands for hunger, and the A, uh, anger, and the L, Loneliness and the T when you're tired. In other words, when you are physically hungry, tired, in a bad state, um, you're more susceptible to sort of replacing that discomfort with pleasure. So you're more susceptible then to using. So one of the things we learn is just be aware, take care of yourself, uh, your normal needs for for uh, satisfying uh, hunger and getting enough rest and having good relationships and uh, and watching anger inside. See, here's what happens. Sometimes when we get to those uh, situations, we say, you know what? I'm a hard worker. I do the best I could. I deserve a break today. And because uh, we're worn out, we're tired, we're angry, we haven't provided for our normal needs, and that increases our uh, propensity to to sin. So sometimes it's really good to set bounds and not meet everybody's needs. Um, I, I love the way the Lord one time told his followers, let's get away. He said, come away. And they went on a retreat somewhere. Isn't that interesting? Well, nobody cared for people more than the Lord, and there was a whole world of needy people, and yet he said, let's just go away and rest up. So that legitimizes sometimes the need we have to say no. You can't meet everybody's needs. You'll go under. And then there'll come a day when you'll say, I just have no life of my own. I'm just tired of meeting other people's needs. I'm going to do this one thing to meet my need. And then you find at a weak moment justification for for doing something outside the will of God. But Well, don't look for that. Just legitimately provide for 
for your needs. It's okay to say no to certain things. You don't have to be running around every night because somebody is needy. You can provide for your physical needs because when you're rested and fed, uh, you can resist sinful temptation a little more readily than you otherwise can. So desire plus opportunity uh, equals disaster. And uh, uh, Cain was in a situation where he did not heed any of this and found himself uh, just about ready to be mastered by sin. And so it says in verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother. Now, can you tell me, what does your Bible say that Cain told Abel? Go out in the field. So do you have the NIV? Yeah. Um, the, does, if you have a different translation other than the NIV, does it specify what it is that Cain told Abel? Yeah, isn't that interesting? It's not in the original text. <laughs> it's, it's presumed that what Cain told Abel is let's go out in the field. It's presumed based on what comes next. But frankly, what he specifically told Abel is not present. So what the NIV uh, authors did, it's not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand. They, having done a careful study of what comes next, fill that in for you. (laughs) Uh, But that's not in the original text. Now, for me, I prefer that someone doesn't fill that in. I like the I like the awkwardness of the Bible. You know what I mean? Sometimes it reads in an awkward, sort of a wooden way. And that's the idea. It's to slow you down. So here I've read the question. I mean, a question popped into my mind as I was reading this. Cain told Abel his brother. And now I'm expecting for a direct quotation. But I don't get it. And it made me think. Now what does that do? How does that affect your life? What's the application for today? None. (laughs) I don't have any idea why I even brought this up. I just want to tell you, these are just good ways to slow down when you read the scripture and ask. It's not that every question you ask is going to be answered, but you have to start, start by examining the text and making observations. So, okay. So, uh, it came about when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother. He killed him. Boy, sin is really having an increasingly corrupt effect on humankind. I mentioned to you the first three chapters of this book are about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the rest from chapter 4 on is about humankind outside the garden. It's not a pretty picture. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan directly coerced Eve into sin. Here in Genesis 4, apparently it's not necessary for his direct involvement. Now that sin has been birthed in Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, He's just giving into it. And so uh, he commits the first murder in the Bible, and it's fratricide, the murder of a brother. It's not good. First murder. By the way, murder is not good. I don't know if you're thinking about it as an option, but since you're in class today, I would just like to suggest it's probably not a good option. You should probably should not kill anybody. Why not? It's really interesting. If God is the one who sees to it, that each person who is born is born into the world, then when another person (laughs) takes the life of one who is born, he or 
She is essentially usurping the role of God. When a person murders, that person is saying, I'm making a determination about the span of your time on earth. You're out of here by my hand. But we can't do that. See, those are decisions that God has to make. And so the uh, Bible says, thou shalt not. Does it say thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder? Murder. Yeah. Exodus 20. Um, it actually means you are not authorized to take someone's life unless you're authorized to take someone's life. So it's a prohibition not against taking someone's life. It's a prohibition, Exodus 20, one of the commandments, about taking someone's life in an unauthorized way. So do you know who is authorized in certain circumstances to take the life of another? The police are. The government is. Military. And those are both agents of government. By the way, government is an institution uh, created by God in the, the same sense in which marriage and the church is, the family and the church. God said, Romans 13, I, I have given the government the power of the sword. It's, an, it's a metaphor for you government have the right to execute the ultimate you, you can impose the ultimate penalty, and that is to take someone's life. God says in Romans 13, the government, you shouldn't fear it, God said, if you do what's good, because its purpose is to protect its citizenry. So this is a little weird maybe, but to me, I think those who are in law enforcement in the military are ministers of God. I think it's ministry. You're in an institution ordained by God for the protection of society. Human society, it seems to me. That's why when someone takes the life of someone in uniform, like a police officer, that is really, really, really serious. They're put in place to protect the citizenry. This is God's idea. So, so the Bible doesn't prohibit the taking of life. prohibits the unauthorized taking of life. Of course, Cain had no authorization to kill his brother. So the Lord says to him, verse 9, Where is Abel, your brother? And once again, I suppose we've been wrong about concluding that God knows all things. Apparently, he lost sight of where Abel was. <laughs> Had to go on a fact-finding mission to find out his whereabouts. But that can't be right. Whenever God asks a question of someone in the Bible, it's not meant for God to get information. It's meant for the person to get right. The question is meant to slow down that person in his or her tracks, take stock, usually repent. So here's an opportunity, even at this point, for Cain to admit, Oh, God, I sinned against you and my brother. I took his lot. Can I find any mercy, any grace, any pardon in you? But he doesn't do that. Here's Cain's answer. I do not know. So what is that called? Yeah, that's called a lie. <laughs> and then he gets sarcastic. Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that one? Yes, he is. He is his brother's keeper. You know, the person who thinks um, he or she can hide sin is really, is really mistaken about that. You can't commit sin in God's world and not be seen by God. So it just makes sense to kind of get it right with God. He sees what happens in the darkness. You can't hide. So uh, God said, verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Hmm. 
In other words, God heard a voice that no human ear could detect. God heard. In fact, something is recorded about it way back in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 verse 4. Not back, way ahead in Hebrews 11 verse 4. It said, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. In terms of longevity, Cain lived longer than did Abel. But I think the essence of life is not, it's not its duration, it's how it's lived. So though Abel's duration was cut short prematurely and tragically, he's recorded in what's called the faith honor roll. But Cain is noticeably absent from that list. So now it says in verse 11, now here's Cain's penalty. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The ground, which had become contaminated with Abel's blood, would now be the source not of blessing, but of cursing, for Cain, and this is a rough one because Cain, he was a farmer. He was a tiller of the soil. It's as if God said, Cain, every time you try to make it uh, from the ground, you will see that it's not producing for you what it was meant to, and you'll be able to take stock. So in verse 12, you see, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You'll be a vagrant and a wanderer. You won't be able to stay put. You won't be able to farm uh, the lower 40 and be sustained. You're going to have to continue to wander like a vagrant and a wanderer, looking for what you need all over the place. By the way, that's a picture of man or woman on the run from God. You know, always moving but never coming to a place of rest. <laughs> Just the, the unsettledness of life which seemed to characterize so many. It's like people with legitimate God-given needs refusing to have them met in a right relationship by him are always on a quest, trying that, reading this, exploring this, investigating that, always always moving but never arriving. That's what happens. Hey, you know, if you're a Christian, I don't want to persuade you some, but if you're a Christian, you probably have a settledness that you may take for granted. Even in the midst of the ups and downs of life, circumstances are rough even for Christians. You may hurt like crazy during some of those times. You might even be angry at God during those times. You may even utter a complaint to him. And still you've come to your resting place. You know it's to him that you're uttering your complaint. You're not looking for a better deal. You have found that Jesus is one-stop shopping. You found that you need love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and self-control. And you found all of those things are encapsulated in the relationship with Christ Jesus. And even though at times it's an emotional down, up, whatever it is, circumstances hurting, inexplicable, all this stuff, something in you says, I don't get this, I don't like this, I feel like I'm losing my grip, but I feel like he has a strong hold on me. I feel like he sees me, has an investment in my life. Something in me tells me, I don't know how, but I think I'm going to get through this. 
I don't know how. I don't know why. There's just, it's inexplicable. It's not a book you read. It's not something someone preached to you. It's God's deposit in you. It's called His Spirit in you, assuring you, I will not let you go. I will not leave you or forsake you. There's just something. This is one of the benefits of being a Christian. It's a measure of settledness that you don't have otherwise. So Cain said, verse 13, my punishment is too great to bear. Now, isn't that interesting? Not a bit of repentance there, is it? It's just the extent of the punishment that he objects to. Here's a, here's a guy. Here's a guy said, God, I think we should be pro-choice. That's what he said, in essence. He said, I think I should have the freedom to make my own choices. And God said, okay. So Cain does. Now Cain is saying, oh, wait, wait, God, you misunderstood. I want the freedom to make my own choices, and then I want the freedom to determine the consequences. No can do. You do have the freedom to make your own choices. We do. We do not have the freedom to determine the consequences. They just happen. That's just the way it is. So today you have a lot of people sort of like Cain. You know, they get caught in sin. And there's a, well, I remember this time, oh my goodness, here at church, uh, someone did something really, really wrong. It only has happened once in the history of this church. All these years. And uh, we, we, as uh, uh, some of the ministers in the church, we were, we were called upon to respond. And we did so, I think, as prayerfully, as lovingly, as gently, but as firmly as we possibly could. And I remember that person just stirring up things like crazy, Facebook and all these other kinds of things, about how heavy-handed and obnoxious and hateful and hostile we were. You know this kind of deal? So here's a person kind of pulling off a cane here. Here's a person deliberately sinning. Not a bit of I did wrong, uh, you know, I repent. and conf-. it, was, it was The objection was to our response to that person. So I remember telling that person, hang on just a second. If you didn't do what you done did, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. So don't put it on me. You were free to do what you did. You are not free to determine our response to it. But that's what Cain is. That's, you know what that's called? That's called not growing up. That's called being a, a child in an adult's body. I mean, children do this. Children do their thing. No, no, no. I, don't, I want to eat candy before dinner. Okay. But then children don't want to live with the consequences. But then parents want to parent that out of them. You know what I mean? But then you get adults sort of being very, very childlike. I want to do what I want to do. The first one of the four-fronted free will, free choice. Who do you think you are? Where's my vote? You know, all this kind of stuff. Okay, cool. But I don't want to live with the consequences. I remember when I was a kid, I demanded of my parents that they would let me uh, sleep outside one night with my friends, you know. Um, and my parents were telling me stuff like, no, it's going to rain and, you know, not good. and all, You know, not now, maybe some other time. I want, I want, I want. Okay, there you go. Torrential downpour. <laughs> Torrential downpour. And I remember knocking at the door of the house wanting to come in. You know what my father said? Enjoy your tent. <laughs> what he said. Well, that was a good lesson. I was angry and all the rest. I didn't like that. No way. But isn't that really true? Freedom means, yes, of course. Freedom means the freedom to make the choice and then the freedom to live with the consequence thereof. No one's going to interfere with your choice and no one's going to interfere with the experience you have of dealing with the consequence. That's called grow up. So Cain is a baby here. He's, he's not getting it. So he's complaining about the punishment. Here's what he said, verse 14. You've driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I'll be hidden. I'll be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. A couple questions. 
Who are the whoever? <laughs> number one. And why do want, did, did they want to kill him? Number two. You have any thoughts about that? What do you think? Have any, what's up here? Yes, ma'am. Listen, that is so accurate. Um, it, it, um, we're reading about Cain. You know, Cain was the first kid birthed by Adam and Eve and all the rest. But they're not the only ones. And so uh, it could be that Abel's other family members are seeking revenge and they want to kill the guy who, who killed their relative. Absolutely. Now, where did these other people come from? Can you just read Genesis chapter 5, verse 4 with me just for a second? Genesis 5. Verse 4, see if I can find this somewhere in the text. Here's what it says. Um, Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years. You know how many kids you can produce in 800 years? You know how many kids your kids can produce in 800 years? And he had other sons and daughters. There you have it. Now, we don't have all their names. Why not? Do you know the Bible is not meant to tell us everything? Did you know that? It's just meant to tell us everything God wants us to know. Well, I don't know the names of all these other kids. Well, I just know the key players, Abel, Cain, Seth, who we'll be introduced to in a second. All the... Anyway, there's a whole ton of people running around, and some of them may want to take Cain's life. He knows about this. And so here's what happens, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him. How many fold? Sevenfold, that means like to the max. Seven, you know, that's, that's, that's everything. That's completion, perfect. That's like the big number. Se- God says, you know what he says? Vengeance is mine. And, and in letting Cain live, which is a question, why do you let him live? Well, for one thing, he's like a, uh, he's like a walking sermon of a few things. He's like a walking billboard of the grace of God because God let him live. He's also a walking billboard of the holiness of God. God let him live as a wanderer and a vagrant. And he's like a sermon to others. Don't do what I did or you'll end up like I am. So God lets him live. And, and, God, and the message is vengeance is, by the way, so we already took away murder. You can't kill somebody. Uh, I know you didn't know that before you came to class today. This is a, but we study hours to tell you this stuff. You can't kill somebody. Not only that, uh, the revenge thing, you're going to have to let that go. Um, it'll sap you. Romans 12. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Why not? Leave room for the wrath of God. Ooh, so you got an option. You, uh, you, you either take the situation in your own hands or you let God handle it. Can't be both. It's one or the other. Leave room for the wrath of God. Why not? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, if we take vengeance, we're essentially saying to God, I think I can bring about justice better than you. Ooh, that's a slap in God's face. To insinuate we're a better justice maker than he is. And so one of the lessons we get in Genesis, it's verified in Romans in the New Testament is, we can say, oh God, I've been treated unjustly. And God will say, you're right, absolutely. You're not making a mountain out of a molehill. I understand that. The question is, are you going to let me handle it or are you going to do it? You have to say, God, I'm going to leave it up to you. You have to do that. Okay, so God says, no, Cain, you're going to be all right because... The Lord appointed a sign or a mark for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. What is the nature of that sign or mark? See, that's an illustration of how the Bible doesn't tell us everything. 
Just what we want to know. There was something put on or around or in Cain to ward off those who might want to take his life. What is it? I don't have any idea. But I do know this, verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And he settled in a place called the land of Nod, or Nod, east of Eden. And the word Nod means um, a place of wandering. See, he was a wanderer sent to a place of wandering. Where is it? It's east of Eden. Where is that? Uh, no idea. Uh, east of, of Israel, uh, in the area probably called the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia. How far east of all that? No idea. But anyway, that's where he was sent. And so here's what happened. Verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife. Whoa, wait just a second. Cain had relations with his wife. Is the implication of this that he married his sister or his niece or somebody? Yes, it is. But wait. Isn't, isn't that called incense? Eventually. Not yet. Why not? How else do things get rolling? Everyone's your kin at the beginning. Not only that, at this point in human history, there weren't mutated genes. Today, there's a legitimate prohibition against incest because the genetic endowment passed on to the product of that relationship won't be a good one could lead to serious impairment. We know this. But that's eons removed from what happened here before the genetic, the gene pool was contaminated. You see what I mean? So this is how it got. Yeah, you, you're darn tootin'. It was not necessarily his sister. We don't know this. It could have been his niece. Anyway, she conceived. She gave birth to Enoch. So what we're seeing now here is God specifying the line of descent through Cain. Why? Well, you'll see in a second. And he built a city, not Enoch. Cain built a city. He called it after his son, Enoch. So Cain built a city at this point. So let me ask you a question. Building the city, good, bad, neutral. Any thoughts about that one? I have some. So I think there's nothing wrong with urbanization and city building. But there was in this case. Because what was the imposed penalty on Cain? He said to God, I, don't, I have a way to get away from the consequence of my sin. I'm just going to settle into this city. <laughs> I'm going to build me a city. I'm not wandering anywhere. You're not letting me be a farmer? Cool. I'll move to the city. I'll be fine. I don't think it's a good thing at all. So here's what happens. Uh, after Enoch is born, verse 18, he gives, born, he gives birth, to, well, not he, his wife gives birth to someone named Irad. Irad becomes the father of Mahujael. By the way, if you're looking for baby, potential baby names, look at that. Where are you going? How about this? How about Mahujael became the father of Methushael? Doesn't that have a good, good ring? Methushael. And Methushael became the father of Lamech. Now, this is interesting. Lamech took to himself how many wives? Yeah, you'd think once enough. Took to himself two wives. So here's the first incidence of man tampering with God's holy pattern for marriage. 
There it is. This is the big book of firsts. Here's the first time man said, you know that deal you told us, God, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, for this cause of man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Uh, no. I want two of those. He takes two. Polygamy. Here's the first polygamy. By the way, nowhere in the Bible does God authorize it or condone it. But at certain times in Israel's history, he permitted it. In fact, some of Israel's patriarchs were in polygamous relationship. You ever hear of a guy named Solomon? That's not the pattern, though. How do I know that? Well, we have it in Genesis 2.24 and ratified by Jesus in Matthew 19, for instance. Just read it. So it's not a good thing. But anyway, that's what this guy did. And he gives them names. You know, one is Ada and one is Zillah. And then verse 20, Ada gave birth to Jabal. And look at this. Jabal, he was the first Aggie. Look at this. Was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. <laughs> so he invented animal husbandry. This was some slick character. I'm serious about this. He authored the whole field of the domestication of animals and making them work for you and stuff like that. But he had a brother. His brother's name was Jubal. Jabal and Jubal. That's interesting. And he was the father. Look at this. Father in the sense of the, or the author, the, the originator of all those who play the lyre or harp, a stringed instrument, and the pipe or flute, wind instrument. Whoa. So one guy in the line of Cain authored animal husbandry. Another one, musicianship, culture, wind in, I mean, wind instruments and um, stringed instruments. Not only that, verse 22, as for Zillah, she also gave birth to another son. His name is Tubal-Cain. He was the forger, look at this, of all implements of bronze and iron. He was the first metallurgist, the field of metallurgy. Look at that. You know what happened through Cain's line? Unbelievably cool stuff. Are you kidding me? Agriculture, animal husbandry, urbanization, city planning, culture, music, invention, metalwork. You know what we conclude? A society can be ungodly as could be and still cultured and civilized. Don't confuse the two. You can dress it up on the outside, but on the inside, a culture could be desperately wicked. And God looks on the inside. Welcome to America. We are an advanced culture. Museums, art shows, literary accomplishments, technology. Wow, we're in the Olympics right now. It's really something. Don't use that as the barometer of our spiritual situation. He looks on the heart. When I think of one of the advanced, most civilized and attractive societies on earth, I think of Nazi Germany. Now, I don't think of Nazi Germany too much, by the way, but, but once in a while I do. And some people say the Nazis were subhuman. That's not right. It was a, an advanced and great society. Brilliant in many respects. Um, very polished. Very, in my opinion, uh, astute, scientifically, academically, intellectually, culturally advanced. Uh, 
Nazi leaders would go to a concert by Wagner, the great composer, and then put my people in the ovens the next day. You, you see, be careful about judging a book by its cover. Be careful about that. God looks, God looks on the heart. What is it in man? Well, it's sin, you see. Today we think we've misdiagnosed our problem. We think our problem in the United States is the deficit in the economy and deficit in education. Now, I agree. There are def- and even in health care. I agree with all that. We ought to work on it. I don't see why a Christian would be opposed to improving our educational system, our economic situation, and making health care available. I don't see how you could object to those things. That's not the point. It's just that those are not the Savior. I don't know if you knew that. So you can educate a kid. I mean, people do it. They try to do sex education in our public schools today. You know what I mean? There's not a kid in there who can't teach the class. My kids know more about sex than us old fogies do. Are you kidding me? That's not the deal. It's not deprivation of information that's the right diagnosis of what's going on in our society today. It's absence of the salvation message. It's redemption. We all know things we do not do. We have to get free from our sinful, sinful inclinations, inclinations. And heaping on more education, that's just not going to do it. Everyone getting a job is just not going to do it. I'm not against those things. Who would be against those? But that's not it. What a distraction of the evil one. To get us thinking. That's how politicians get elected, by the way. Tapping into the... We all say we got problems in the economy and health care and school system. We, we all say that. Okay, absolutely, I, vote, you, I vote for you. I'm not saying that's, that's a bad deal. I don't misunderstand. We want the politicians to work on that stuff. I hope we do. But that's not it. Even if they accomplish all that they promise, and they won't, to accomplish in those areas, we're still left looking like the line of Cain. We got all this culture and sophistication and all this kind of stuff. And my heavens, we've, I think we've crossed the moral line. I'm not a prophet of doom, but I think when we said same-sex marriage is okay, we crossed the line. Why that one? Because the, in, the mysterious purpose of marriage is to reflect Christ's weddedness to us. That's not my words. That's Ephesians 5. When speaking of a male's role and a, a, a husband's role and a wife's role, Paul peels off and says, you know what? <laughs> I'm not even speaking about marriage. It's a mystery, which is Christ and his church. So when we, as did Lamech, play games with God's design in marriage, as we continue to do, I think that's when God, he doesn't say, I will judge you. I think he begins to judge. We're not waiting for the judgment of God. It's here. We have really, really, really crossed. We've really crossed. By the way, those who are proponents of same-gender marriage, uh, they don't realize, I don't think, what they've opened the door to. For instance, at the recent Grammy Awards thing, uh, 33 couples were were married at the Grammy Awards, and it was just every kind of diversity of People, couples, you can imagine, many, many same gender. And uh, the ceremony, uh, key role, uh, person who played a key role in the seminary, uh, in the sem- ceremony was, uh, was Madonna. So I'll tell you something. And then a couple rappers, uh, they have a song. It's called Same Love. That was the wedding song, Same Love. They make a very strong point. 
they're saying these couples are in in front of you demonstrating they have the same love for one another that a heterosexual couple does. If it's the same love, who are you to get in the way? Isn't that a good argument? But let me tell you what they did by winning that argument. They just opened the door for all kinds of unusual love relationships. See, the, the gay community can no longer say we are against polyamorous or polygamous relationships. If we two love one another, why can't we three, we four, and call that marriage? The gay community can no longer say uh, a man can't marry his dog. But I love my dog. It's the same love. Uh, uh, the, uh, we, we will no longer be able to say a man cannot marry a boy. Now, the gay community is up in arms about that. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. Yes, that's, that's the slippery slope. Yeah, when you say same, as long as, if love is what defines the legitimacy of marriage, then that means that's the only prerequisite you need to make a marriage. Some kind of combination of beings who love one another. But God said that's not it. For this cause, a man, man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two, do the math, shall become one flesh. That's the definition of marriage right there. So uh, we, I think we've crossed the line. I think we're in Hebrew. Term. Now, will it come to all these things I just told you? I don't think so. You know why? Because God will return. Jesus will return before we destroy. But for the sake of the elect, Christians who are salt and lying, Jesus will return, get us out before the fullness of human sin so corrupt society that we're gone too. I'm no date setter. I don't know anything about that. I hope I'm not being overly dramatic. But when we declare, Scotland just did it. The, uh, almost, uh, almost everyone in Scotland voted on this initiative to declare uh, gay marriage legitimate. I've never seen such a th- movement on an, on an international on an international scale. That's why I say I think we've crossed the moral line like crazy. And because of the essence of marriage as a reflection of... See, we're called the bride of Christ. He's called our heavenly husband. See what I mean? That's why there is... Did you know there's no marriage in heaven? Did you know that? Why not? There's no reason for it. That's why. It's meant here to reflect Christ's weddedness to be in a covenant bond with us. Well, there's no need for that representation when we're in heaven. <laughs> you see what I mean? So when we mutate, when, when, when we distort God's design in marriage. Oh, boy. That's when we cross the line, it seems to me. Well, anyways, you have this unbelievably advanced society. By the way, this flies in the face of evolutionary theory. It doesn't look like they were a bunch of bumpkins lying around, walking on all fours, looking like apes. Holy moly. Look at what they got going. They didn't evolve. They were smart dudes and dudettes from the beginning. For crying out loud. If anything, we're devolving. We're less intelligent than these folk were. But anyway, um, so here's what Lamech, uh, something else about Lamech. He was also a poet, probably the world's first poet, because what happens in verse 23 and 24 is poetry. It doesn't actually come through in the English, but that's Hebrew poetry you're about to read. Look, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, and here's the poem. Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech. I've killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. 
If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. It's a poem of arrogance. This guy is saying, God, you say you're going to handle some stuff? I can handle stuff better than you. You're going to avenge Cain's potential death, murder, sevenfold? Anyone mess with me? I'll avenge him. What? I killed a boy for wounding me. You see the arrogance? So this is, this is the Cainite line. It's uh, given to murder and lies and sexual improprieties and distortion of marriage and uh, unbridled arrogance. But good news. Verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Why'd she name him that? Because she said, God has appointed me. That's what Seth means. Acquired or appointed. Uh, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also, a son was born. He called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. I mentioned the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It just tells us everything God wants us to know. One of the things he wants us to know is you've got two lines here. One's through Cain, one's through Seth. The one through Cain accomplished a lot except being right with God, ungodly. The one through Seth, ah, through his line, men first began to call upon the name of the Lord. By the way, the Hebrew word underlying our English to call upon doesn't mean just to utter words to God. It's much stronger. It really implies this is the first time people began to assemble as a worship community to worship God. In Seth, people of faith began to fall at the feet of creator God. And what you're going to see uh, as we continue through Genesis now, things being traced through Seth. Now let me, and that's important uh, for this reason. Would you like to venture a guess as to what famous personage comes through the line of Seth? It's the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. So when you have nothing to do, Go home and read Luke chapter 3. There's a genealogy in it. It's real hard to get through because his names nobody can pronounce. Don't worry. Just read until you find the name of Seth. And you will see Seth in the messianic line. So that's what God's doing here in the Bible. He's not answering all of our questions yet. That's what heaven's for. That's why we have eternity. He's telling us this. Y'all have a problem. It's called sin. And you can pretty it up with all your... Um, cultural accomplishments and all the rest, but on the inside, you're desperately wicked. You can't get over it because sin has had its mastery over you. But do not despair because though I'm holy, I'm also gracious and merciful. So in contradistinction from the line of Cain, I'm raising up the line of Seth through whom the Redeemer will come because you can't save yourself and he's coming to save you. Read all about it, Luke chapter So what you get in the rest of Genesis now, God is starting with the whole general population of humankind coming through our parents, Adam and Eve, and then he's going to start narrowing things down, the line of Messiah through Seth, and then it's going to pass through Abraham, and then it's going to pass through Isaac, then it's going to pass through Jacob, 
And then it's going to get even more precise so that no thinking person looking for the Savior need be mistaken about his identity. You don't have to guess about who he is. God would never leave something that important up to chance. When you go through Genesis, when you finish, you will find out Jesus is the only one in the line of Seth who fulfills the prerequisites of being the Savior of the world. He comes from the line of Seth. By the way, what's your line? Now, I know this is ethnic and all that stuff, but, but that's not the application. The application is you're either identified with the line of Cain or the line of Seth by faith. Don't worry about biology and physiology and genetics. You're only, you're ident- the connecting link to Almighty God has nothing to do with ethnicity and gender and all that. It has to do with faith. So, so what's your connection? Is it with the line of Cain? You know, just worldly, not doing bad stuff necessarily. You might be doing good stuff, just invested, invested, invested in things that don't really matter. They're going to pass away, and you're neglecting Almighty God. You're not rightly related to him. That's the line of Cain, and worse. But the line of Seth, are you part of a community of people, like-minded people, who are calling upon the name of the Lord, who are looking to his character, depending upon what comes from him, seeking to follow his lead. In other words, are you saved or are you not? That's what's in view here. I hope the answer is redeemed, am I? Redeemed by the blood of one of Seth's famous people to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we bow before you in thanksgiving, first, for showing us what's happened. How did we get to the place we now are? Wow, you spell it out so clearly in Genesis. And thank you for addressing our problem. It isn't IQ, economics, education. Those are problems. But the main problem is that we've drifted from you, become wanderers and vagrants in your very world. No, God, thank you for the solution. You came to take up your abode amongst wanderers and vagrants in the world, to give us a resting place, a settled place, to be our rock, to give us a family that we could belong in, to give us a new pronouncement of justification and reconciliation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's our desire that even at this point in our advanced degree of sinfulness in, in the world, many, many, many would still turn to you, connected by faith in the line of Seth to you as Savior of the world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, next week we'll look at Genesis 5. <laughs>